Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 117, Return on Character, The Moral Habits and Reputation of CEOs Who Win, featuring Fred Keel. Engaging Leader is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. Aspendale can make your mission and values real for your employees and new hires. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. When you're the CEO or senior leader, bottom line results matter, especially when the going gets tough. The conventional assumption is that the big boss should push profits by any legal means necessary. You know, even if that means twisting the truth, breaking promises, and being a jerk to other people. But for most of us, that intuitively feels wrong. We'd like to think that virtue isn't just its own reward, that doing the right thing and treating people right is smart business that also delivers results to the bottom line. What does the data say? A new study of more than 8,000 employees and 84 CEOs found that character really does matter. In fact, character-driven leaders and their teams consistently deliver nearly five times greater return, as well as reduced risk and higher employee engagement. In today's show, we'll be talking to Dr. Fred Keel, who led the study and wrote the new book, Return on Character. One finding that comes out in the book is the importance of self-awareness. If you don't get feedback and reflect on your character, you can easily get to the point where everyone but you knows you're a jerk. When I reflect on my own character just in the past week or so, I can think of three times when I didn't treat people the way I really should have treated them. I'll just share a brief story about the, the first of those times. It was about halfway through three days of planning meetings with a team. And we got to the point where I was growing impatient, that I wanted us to come to some decisions and then start making some action plans, start doing some things. And a couple of people in the room wanted to go back and revisit a few topics that I thought we had already talked to death, to be blunt. And that's just my nature. I'm uh, an action, more of an action-oriented, execution-oriented kind of person. And sometimes that's good. It keeps a group moving. But sometimes that impatience that I have can get expressed wrongly. And I raised my voice and basically lost my temper to try to get us to move on. And uh, as soon as we came to the next break, I reflected on myself that I had acted wrongly. And so I apologize to the people that I had spoken to that way and as well as to everyone who heard me talk to them that way. And so it was good to get their forgiveness. Um, but, you know, I, nobody was fooled. It wasn't like everybody saw me lose my temper. And that, of course, says something about my character or maybe just uh, the amount of sleep that I'd had or how well I was managing myself. It was a ri- reminder to me that no matter how far I think I've come over the course of years of my career in developing my character, I'm still on a journey of cultivating it. I think we need to continually cultivate the 
character habits that will make us effective leaders. And so I was very glad to dig into a brand new book that will help us do just that. It's called Return on Character, The Real Reason Leaders and Their Companies Win. Fred Keel, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thank you. Glad to be here. Fred, character is often considered a subjective trait. How did you define it for the purpose of the study? Well, you're right. Character is a, is a subjective state, but it's also can be objectively measured. Um, the subjective part is what you know to be true in your heart about what your character is, but that's your intentions that you know. Um, but unfortunately, you're the only one that has access to that. What other people, how other people judge your character is based on your behavior. When you think of somebody that you really admire as being a strongly principled person, it's because of their behavior. They tell the truth. They keep their promises, they own up to their own mistakes, they treat people with care and respect and, and are forgiving when people make well-intentioned mistakes. When people behave that way, you're drawn to them and you, you really recognize them as a person of strong character. So we identified a set of behavioral indicators in leadership that would illustrate four moral principles, integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. And We ended up with 25 of those behavioral indicators, and then we used an algorithm to combine those into a single objective score. The ratings were obtained by random samples of employees rating how frequently their CEO and their senior team displayed those behaviors. How often do they tell the truth? Do they keep their promises? Do they act you know, in forgiving ways rather than shaming and blaming, and did they, how often do they treat people as people rather than as objects? And when all that's combined together, on a scale from 0 to 100, we ended up with a single character score for both the CEO and for the senior team. How did you land on those four character habits? Well, it's interesting. When we, um, prior to this book and the doing this research, uh, I had a co-author and we wrote a book called Moral Intelligence. And the history behind that is that um, my co-author was the head of the American Express Financial Planning Division. At that time, they had about 12,000 financial planners working across the nation. And he was a pioneer in using emotional intelligence model to assess and train financial planners. And one day he said, you know, he said, there's a subset of these trainees that score high on all of the emotional intelligence skills, but they score very low on the integrity scale. And he said, what do you make of that? And I said, well, it seems really obvious that you've figured out a way to identify budding psychopaths or budding (laughs) con artists. (laughs) And, of course, he ruled them out. But the more we talked, the more we realized that maybe Dan Goldman missed, he missed the fact that there's an underlying deeper form of intelligence that serves as a foundation for emotional intelligence. And that's what we dubbed as moral intelligence. And we ended up building a leadership model around that and published it in a book Wharton Business School published 2005 called Moral Intelligence. But to build that leadership model, we did a really deep dive in all of the other literature of philosophy and developmental psychology and environmental psychology and theories of child development and all of that. And we got into the neurosciences about human nature. And then we stumbled onto the field of cultural anthropology, which was really interesting to us because what cultural anthropologists have done in the last decade or so is they focused on what do human societies have in common all around the globe, regardless of the nuances of their culture. And it turns out that, there's a, and they published a, basically an encyclopedia of all the beliefs and principles and practices that are universal in all human cultures. And it turns out that there are 
are universal moral principles that are honored by all people within their tribes around the globe. And all parents teach their children some form the behaviors around integrity that is telling the truth and keeping their promises. All parents teach their children the behaviors around being responsible for their own choices and owning up to their own mistakes and expressing concern for the common good. Those are sort of two of the head. And then two moral principles of the heart, forgiveness and compassion. And again, all parents teach their children within their tribe to overlook other people's mistakes and to show and to treat them as people and to be uh, caring of them as people rather than treating them as objects. And we thought, you know, we chose those four because we reasoned that when leaders would behave that way, and treat the workforce with integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. We thought that was probably about as good as it gets. And so we put a stake in the ground and, and said that leaders who honor those four moral principles of their behavior will, in fact, get better long-term sustained business results. We just didn't have the data. So our second task was then to go out and see if our claim was, in fact, true. <laughs> we thought that'd take <laughs> a couple of years, and it took seven, but... Seven years studying 8,000 employees from over 80 different organizations. And the big headline that comes out of the data is that leaders who rank high on character achieve nearly five times greater returns. That's right. Now, what you were essentially measuring, I guess, because you were ranking them based on what their employees said about them. So you were essentially yeah. measuring their character reputation. We were, yes. It's it's how they are viewed by their employees. Their employees rated them on a nine-point scale for each of the behaviors illustrating those four moral principles, where nine is they always behave this way and one is they never behave that way. And, you know, the strong character leaders are ones that the employees agree. They almost always tell the truth. They almost always own up to their own mistakes. They almost always treat us with respect and care, and they are never shaming and blaming and we isolated also the low character leaders in our study. It ended up we had a very nice spread. So there was a large group of very low character leaders. And their employees said that, well, they tell the truth maybe about half the time, which means that they, another way of saying that is they lie about half the time. <laughs> and they don't even show that they treat us as people half the time. I mean, we're, we're clearly numbers to them. We're treated as objects and and, uh, you know, when somebody makes a mistake, you're risking your career, they immediately shame and blame and point fingers and fire people and all of that. So that was the, the behaviors of the low character leaders. And then we, this is descriptive research. We don't claim to have causative relationship. You can't prove that. But, you know, it's, it's descriptive. And what we found is that there's a consistent measurable relationship connection between the character of the leadership team and the return on assets. Hmm. Nearly five times greater. Do you ever get any pushback about whether asking employees about the CEO and other leader is a legitimate measure of their actual character? The reputation that employees know about the CEO and other leaders, is that the truth? Well, um, what, we, what we know is that the wisdom of the crowd is often the, the, the best way of getting a picture of the truth. Just as a little experiment, in some cases, we asked the employees to estimate the height, the, how tall the CEO was. <laughs> and, um, and we got a nice spread. We got, you know, a bunch of people that said he was four or five inches taller than he was, and some that said he was three or four inches shorter than he was. But when we averaged out the responses from 100 employees, we came in with, with one quarter of an inch of his actual height. And if they're that accurate about something like that, we suspect that they're also, the combined judgment of all those people 
will be equally as accurate about how often this person tells the truth. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, if I get his name right, Dan Daniel Kahneman, yeah. the economist, right. uh, has said the same thing that when you that's right. properly measure people and average them, they will tell you the truth. Yeah, you decorrelate error, is what he said. Is that you know when when there's error, and there's always error in a measurement, but that varies both ways. It cancels itself out and it zeroes itself out. So that what you're left with that isn't zero probably represents the truth. Now, as I've been reading the book and then talking about it to other people, they tend to get a look on their face, sort of, it's too good to be true. Yeah. And they question the data much more so than they typically do to other business and leadership books. And I'm wondering if you found that to be true, and and why do you suppose there seems to be greater skepticism about this idea that moral leaders actually win? Well, I think that's so embedded in our culture. And, you know, I, as we went through this, we were skeptical too. We thought this can't be true. I mean, you know, we had our advisor, at, a professor of accounting at Duke University, really independently go through all of the data and all that. And by the way, for your people you have conversations with that bring that up, tell them just to go to the appendices. The data is all in there and they can make up their own minds. If they can figure out a different way to interpret the data, I'm all ears. I'd like to. But we, we sorted on every other variable we could think that might explain how both return on assets and character went up at the same time. Maybe they're unrelated. There's some third factor that was driving them both up, and we couldn't find any. I mean, when we sorted by tenure or we sorted by age or we sorted by education or we sorted by childhood home life and all of that, it, we and we sorted with regard to political voting behavior and religious practices, all of those turned out no differences in return on assets between the two extremes on each of those and when we sorted on character and the extremes boom it just comes right up Hmm. now just to be clear when you're talking about character there's a difference i think between uh being having character and and simply being a nice person right is that would you can you break that down for us a little bit well i think a nice person is someone who is uh you know psychopaths can be nice people (laughs) in fact in fact, that's how they get their hand in your wallet, is that they immediately impress you as being a trustworthy, nice human being. So those are really emotional intelligence skills and, and relationship skills and, and all of that. But character is your behavior on how you treat other people. Certainly, high-character people tend to treat other people respectfully, and some would say that's nice. But there's some high-character people that Maybe you wouldn't say they're very nice, but you always believe what they say. You know that they treat you as a human being that's co-equal to them. They might be a little clumsy in how they relate to you and all of that, but if you really are convinced they're telling you the truth, that they're humble, they own up their own mistakes, that they don't shame and blame people, and that they really are concerned about welfare of other people, you know, they're, they're, you judge them as being high character. They may not be nice in that sense that they have great people skills, mm-hmm. but they are viewed as being strong character. Hmm. Now, Fred, in your book, you talk about this a little bit. Early in your career, you would not have scored well personally on a character assessment. Can, what's your story? <laughs> <laughs> well, my story is that I grew up in a home where my parents, even though they weren't perfect, I think... They were high character people, and I was very, fairly well uh, instructed in those. And somehow or other in my 20s and 30s, I drifted really away from that pathway and really became focused. I, I kind of bought the whole Wall Street greed thing is that, okay, the good guys are the ones that 
maybe they don't do it. They don't do anything illegal, but they certainly don't focus on being nice guys and caring for people. They have a good business model, and they get out there and they charge ahead and they make a lot of money. And that was what my goals became in my 30s and, and early 40s. And by the time I was in my middle 40s, I was the CEO of a, a publicly held company that I had, had founded. And uh, we had ambitious plans, and it turns out that we were undercapitalized. And after about a year and a half of, of uh, struggling to make this business a success, I went to my board and I said, I think we need to change our strategy. We need to retract and get this stable again. And it'll take me about six to nine months to do that. And after I've done that, then why don't we start a process of, of uh, finding my successor? I'm, I'm feeling kind of burned out. Well, the chairman of the board came back two weeks later and he says, well, we met as a, as a board without you. And he said, we've decided we already have your successor. You're out. <laughs> <laughs> so that was part of the wake-up call. At about that same time, I was uh, starting to get feedback from my wife that she was pretty lonely and felt like she was a single parent and that I had become the person, different person than the one that she had married and, and all of that. And so anyway, it kind of all started to come in around me. And I uh, had a good friend who said, Fred, he said, there's a spiritual retreat weekend coming up. He said, for men, he said, I think, I think you'd find that useful. And I thought, huh, you know, I don't need, need something like that. And he said, well, why don't you consider it? I really think it would be good for you. So actually, I, I cleared my calendar and I went to it. And the first lecture was all about what's important to you. And the lecturer asked everybody to rate, rank order the importance of God, family, and career. So I put God number one because by then I was kind of going back to church and I was pretty proud of that. And I put family as number two and I put career as number three. And then the lecturer said, now I want you to get out your checkbook and your calendar and ask, do how you spend your time and your money match up with those? And of course, I was totally exposed <laughs> as being a fraud <laughs> that I was spending 99% of my time on my career and my family and God got what was left over. And that turned out to be a, a major turning point for me. I, I came in and sort of crashed down and realized how far I had deviated from the way I'd been brought up. I remembered my father, I grew up in Ranch, ranch country of the western Dakotas. And I remember my father at dinner at times talking about guys like I had become. This big shot with uh, thought he was really important. I mean, at the time I was a CEO of that publicly held company, I was driving a red Cadillac and had a diamond ring on my left hand and had a telephone in my car in the 1980s. That was a big deal. <laughs> right. It's big as a brick, but it was there. <laughs> and uh, my father's words, I recalled, haunted me. He said he would describe people like me as being a guy with a big hat but no cattle. Huh. <laughs> and I really turned my life around over the next couple of years. I figured out that I had lost my heart. It was no longer connected to my head. And I went through a, a real renewal process, transformation process, and, and uh, rededicated my life. At the end of that couple of years, I realized that what I had successfully done was connected my head to my heart, and I set my goal as helping senior leaders of large organizations connect their heads to their hearts. Because I reasoned that if leaders of large organizations do that successfully, they will, in fact, make better decisions for all of us and that they will have successful businesses and, and humanity will be, be better served. So for the past 25 years, that's what I've been doing. It culminated in this research and this book. You know, it's interesting. Your story connects with me in a lot of ways. One is which... I've often heard it said that everyone thinks they're okay, that we all think we're basically morally good. Right. 
And sometimes we need somebody else to point out or have consequences that basically everybody else knew that you'd turned into gradually turned into a jerk. And so one day you, you're basically just fired. And your data in the study bears this out that in their self-assessment, even though employees were in agreement on whether the CEO was morally good or bad, the bad CEOs rated themselves just as moral as the good CEOs. How can we as leaders be better at self-awareness so we aren't fooling ourselves like that? Well, that is self-awareness is the key. And, you know, if we use the, we call them the virtuoso leaders, the strong character leaders, if we use them as a, a model, they had a lifelong habit of making it very safe for other people to tell them the truth. They sought it out continually. They assumed there's a lot that I don't know about myself or the whole world around us. They were very open to feedback and they made it very easy and, and safe for people to give them feedback. And those that were at the bottom end of the character scale made it very clear they didn't want feedback and that they were people were punished. It wasn't safe to tell the truth to senior management. <laughs> that was what the message was that employees said resoundingly about the low character leaders. It's not safe to tell them the truth. So uh, self-awareness is the key. And, you know, how do you develop a self-awareness? Well, when you have some sort of a wake-up call, when you realize that you don't have the tools in your toolbox to deal with your current situation. I mean, when my wife was ready to leave me and my, I'd gotten fired from my, my business and my friend was telling me I needed a spiritual reworking, <laughs> uh, you know, that's pretty pretty big, obvious data that uh, it was hard to avoid. And I mean, I could have taken the other, other response to that and said, you know, to heck with them all and divorced my wife and, and gone off and started down that route all over again. But I didn't. And uh, I'm very happy I didn't. My wife and I just celebrated our 35th year together. So, Wow, congratulations. Yeah. Now, it's also interesting that the high character leaders rated themselves a little bit lower than how their employees rated them. Right. Is humility a common character trait as well? Yeah. Humility is, is built into the high character leaders is that their assumption is, is that they're not quite as good as other people might think they are and that... You know, they maybe have, in one sense, too much self-awareness or maybe a self-awareness that's a little hard on themselves because they did rate themselves a couple of points lower than their employees rated them. And, they, and you know, and they know how easy it is to to win a popularity contest. So they were sort of suspicious of, of uh, being, you know, rated as being too high and, and uh, they didn't want to be put high up on a pedestal. Now, according to your research, it's not only important for the CEO to have high moral character, but the senior leadership needs character as well. That's right. If we're making an external hire into a leadership position, how would we go about measuring that, that person's character? Well, I think that's a real challenge, and, and that's why character has never been accurately assessed. There's been no tools available to assess the character when you're hiring somebody. And in spite of our research, it's still a very difficult thing to do because when outside if you're trying to hire an outside candidate, he's he or she is probably employed at another company in a high-level position. And the only way to really get accurate data is would be to do a survey, randomly selected people within that company to rate them. So I don't think that tool is, is available at a selection process or a, before hiring. It certainly is within six months after hiring, and I would recommend that that be done as a standard procedure by boards and, and senior executives after they've hired somebody at a senior level within six months 
before that, you know, you're really at, at risk of making bad judgments based on how well people interview. And we know that con artists are exceptionally good at interviewing well, and they are exceptionally good at finding two or three people who will sing their praises for them, whether or not that's based on any kind of fact or uh, not is, is debatable. It's really quite difficult. But don't hesitate to do the due diligence. I heard a story the other day that it was only after the person proved to be a disaster and was and was so underperforming at the end of three months that the company did a much deeper dive and they found out that the guy was a whole total fraud. That hmm. There was a lot of information that could have been discovered about him. There was a period of six or seven years on his resume that looked like some sort of a mystery. He claimed he was in China. Well, they checked with the companies in China and claimed he was with, and they had never heard of him before. So when he was confronted with that, he basically resigned and got the heck out of Dodge because he didn't want to suffer any consequences. But they could have done that before they hired him. So do a, you know, don't depend on interview. Do really sophisticated, deep dive background checks on people. Hmm. So that's with new hires. Now, if you have an existing team, you mentioned doing basically serving your own employees. Would you do that on a regular basis with, with your whole team? Yes. On an annual basis, we have a, a tool now that we call the Senior Team Benchmark Assessment Tool. It measures not only their character reputation, it measures their skills as perceived by the employees. What is a good team supposed to be skilled in doing? Well, they're supposed to be skilled in creating a vision and strategic focus. They're supposed to be skilled in creating a culture of accountability. They're supposed to be uh, good at creating a climate where collaboration innovation happens. They're supposed to be skilled at instilling confidence in the workforce and having disciplined decision-making. So there's skills, there's the reputation, there's the skills. And then they're also supposed to be supposed to be skilled in creating the conditions that lead to workforce engagement. And then finally, the team itself, we assess how well the team functions compared to a high-performing team. Is there alignment between the team leader and the rest of the team members on how they see how well they function. Do they have agreement around goals and purpose? Do they have agreement around their roles? Do they have agreement about how they work together, you know, how decisions are made and how often meetings are held? And finally, is there a depth of trust and respect for each other? That Those are the four variables. It's not only reputation, character reputation, but it's skills, it's workforce engagement conditions and team dynamics. Those are the four levers that if an organization gets that can assess that accurately, and then they can focus on improving those dimensions, and then to reassess it annually will show whether they've made progress, or they've slipped, or they've maintained, or what they've done. And when you're talking about the senior leadership team, one bad apple can spoil the bunch. Yep. So you've got to take it seriously when you discover that you've got a bad apple on the team, and that's, of course, no secret to the rest of the organization. Everybody already knew that 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 person is a jerk. And everybody wonders why in the world the CEO doesn't do something about it. This is one of the, the most probably biggest mistakes that a CEO can make is not to is to tolerate that kind of performance on their team. And they're often sort of see viewed as between a rock and a hard place. And they, they tend to overlook it because that person is often has some really good skills and is, is bringing something to the plate with regard to their skills in spite of the fact that they uh, cut around the edges on truth and don't always... <laughs> <laughs> Treat other people, right? To be a virtuoso CEO in our study, you also had to have a virtuoso team. There were a few CEOs in our study who were rated themselves very high, but their team were rated quite low. 
And when I gave them one in particular, I remember giving him that feedback. And he says, yeah, I said, I'm not surprised. He said, I know who's drawing that down. He said, that's my chief operating officer. He said, yeah. I said, why have you put up with it? Well, I don't know. I, you know, I, I probably should do something about that. But I just, you know, I mean, he was afraid of conflict and he didn't want to step up and do the hard work. And yet everybody below wondered why in the world he put up with this guy. Big mistake. Yeah. Is character something we can learn and even teach to people on our team? Well, it's an interesting question. Most people would think that's something you're born with and you don't really have much control over. And I think the reason you feel you don't have much control over it is that most of how you treat other people is a matter of habit. And habits, by definition, operate below your level of awareness. You know, we think of some other habits in your life, just like going to, you know, when you're driving, you stop at a stop sign, you put your foot on the brake. You don't think in advance, oh, I got to do that. In fact, neuroscientists agree that about 95% of the choices that all of us make in the course of a day are automatic. They are not ones that go through your cognitive capacity. That includes everything from what to have to lunch, how you greet people, but it also includes uh, significant business decisions that, that people make just automatically and intuitively. Well, how you treat other people is a matter of, of sort of an automatic response. It's your first response. It's a habit. Is your first response in any situation to think about telling the truth or is it to spin? Is your first habit to point and blame others or circumstances when things go wrong, or is it to step up to the plate and take responsibility? Is your first response when somebody else who is perhaps well-intentioned makes a, a big blunder, is your first response to shame and blame them and fire them, or is it to be curious? And when you're, is your first response when you meet somebody is to treat them as an object, or is it to treat them as a human being first? I mean, those are all habits, and strong character people have those habits as ingrained as their first response. Now, if it's not your first response, you can change that. We know that habits can be changed. Now, they're not always easy to change, but if there's enough motivation for it, if you, first of you become aware, you know, most people who others would describe as having sharp elbows, indicating that they often are kind of rough on other people, they are the last ones to know that. Everybody else knows it, and everybody talks about it behind their back, and everybody else kind of deals with it. They, they work around those bad habits. Well, when somebody that has those kind of bad habits of sharp elbows understands and comes to realize that's how I'm viewed, if it's important enough and they're, if they're shocked enough and they do not want to be viewed that way and they're motivated enough, then they will get into the mode of asking other people to help them change. And they will, in fact, be able to change those habits. Under times of stress, they may revert back to being a sharp elbowed person. But, you know, that's the way habits are is that they – once they're ingrained in your neural pathways, they're always there. You can create new neural pathways. The old ones don't go away, hmm. but you can change. So that's changing ourselves. What about shifting the overall culture of our organization? If we come to the realization, for example, that we have a, a shift the blame type culture, is it possible to actually shift the entire organization? Well, it is. You know, the studies on workforce engagement show that about 70% of, of workers in North America and Europe are, are disengaged. And of that 70% that are disengaged, about 20 or 25% are actively disengaged. That is, they're not just neutral when they come to work, putting in their time. They're actually doing things to actually harm the business. So there's a, a great motivation and reason on trying to uh, do something about that case. 
it's obvious, however, that nobody, no senior management doesn't understand what to do. And all the workforce engagement surveys that are done, there's the mantra, all the firms that are out there promoting that, saying that workforce engagement starts at the bottom. That is absolutely patently false. Workforce engagement starts at the top, and then it flows to the bottom. So you're never going to change a culture that is into blaming and shaming, for example, or any other kind of negative ways of treating people unless senior management steps up to the plate and first does an awareness. What is their reputation as a team? And if their reputation as a team opens some eyes for them, then the leader could go through an individual assessment or maybe they don't need to. There's the whole team should then put together a, a real change program for change if they want to, if they want to act on it. What they need to do is they need to go public. I had a team recently that was very shocked at how low their ratings were, reputation was around forgiveness and compassion. They were viewed as people that told the truth, but they were viewed as being very hard on people that made mistakes and very unforgiving and having a long memory and and it was basically just using people. They scheduled a company-wide meeting and they got up on stage. This was well-planned. They rehearsed it and everything else. But they had all eight of them sit at a panel up front, and they had about four or five PowerPoint slides illustrating the findings from our study about them. And they basically confessed. They went public to the whole company, and they said, here's our plan. We need your help. We, we don't want to be this kind of a culture. This isn't something we can change overnight, but we were just, here's what we're doing to move in that direction, and we need your help. Well, that released more optimism and more positive energy than you can imagine. Hmm. And they're well on their way to making changes. And now each of them are doing a deep personal dive into finding what is it that I personally do that, that communicates and telegraphs to other people that I'm not forgiving or I'm not caring about them. But they were having a big retention problem on frontline employees. They were having issues. They were people feeling burned out and overworked and all that. And uh, it's, it's instilled a whole new life. Now, we'll reassess them next January to see how success they've had. But early signs are that they're having a great success in changing the culture of this entire company. Fantastic. Fred, tell us a little about KRW International and the work you do. Well, KRW um, International is a firm that goes back about 25 years. The roots of it go back even earlier when I got the opportunity to work with senior executives long before this was called executive coaching. So I was one of the pioneers in that field and created that field in the late 70s and KRW was formed in the early 90s as an executive coaching firm, working at the C-suite senior level. And, you know, we really dominated that space for the first few years of the 1990s. In 1993, Fortune magazine did a cover story on KRW called The Executive's New Coach. And, uh, you know, we were really, really in that space and dominated it. KRW has since moved on so that it's a, a, a much more focus on helping organizations fine-tune and become uh, more execution ready to be firms that can really execute. And what, of course, in our research, we discovered that the perceived character reputation of the senior team is a major driver of execution effectiveness. So we have a whole consulting division that helps companies, divisions of companies or entire large organizations fine tune, focus on, starts with focusing on the senior team and their character reputation, but it also moves on helping them as a team be more effective, helping them as a team improve their skills and focus on what they can do to, to uh, engage the workforce properly. KRW Research Institute uh, was formed just to do this research. This is reported in the book, and we are now doing a second stage 
of research of longitudinal studies of finding out what is it that a, when a senior team finds out that they're not as high on the character curve as they want to be, what is it that they can do to get up in the character curve? Now, we're, we think we know that, and we're helping through our consulting division. A lot of companies do that. So every consulting engagement has an underlying research dimension laid on it where we collect this longitudinal data. People can go to our website, krwinternational.com. So you can also get there by going just to returnoncharacter.com and find out all about what we do. And if you're interested in research, of contacting us. There's also a couple of free inventories on there. There's a self-assessment inventory, and as we all know, that that's to be viewed with suspicion because almost everybody <laughs> probably comes out very high on that. <laughs> but there's another inventory called the Character Reputation Predictor. And our data scientists isolated 65 questions out of our database. You wonder what some of them have anything to do with leadership, and I don't know either, but they have predictive <laughs> uh, capacity. That when you answer those questions, it will give you a score that predicts if you were to do a survey of randomly selected people around you, this is where you might score on the character curve. It's, it's a rough idea, but it's better than a self-assessment. Fascinating. Well, the book is Return on Character, The Real Reason Leaders and Their Companies Win. Fred Keel, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Well, you're very welcome. Happy to have been there. All right, Engagers, let's wrap up. High character CEOs deliver nearly five times greater bottom line results, and they reduce risk as well as increase employee engagement by 26%. Let's continually cultivate our character and demonstrate the organization's mission and values by both how we act and how we communicate. Start by practicing those four most common character habits of virtuous leaders that Fred mentioned. Integrity, which leads to confidence in management. Responsibility, which leads to a culture of accountability. Forgiveness, which leads to innovation. And compassion, which leads to collaboration. Again, the book is Return on Character. We'll provide links to the information that Fred mentioned, including the book, the website, as well as the two-minute self-assessment quiz and the longer 65-question predictor of character reputation. You can find those on our show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 117 as in episode 117. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about. 